0: Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year.
1: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything.
0: On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote
1: even in the aftermath of the trump administration the energy of these conspiracy theorists grifters and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point
0: welcome back to fever dreams i'm will summer and folks she's back after spending several months undercover in the proud boys girls host kelly Weil has <laughs> returned she's shed her cover identity and she's back welcome kelly
1: Thank you. I've had a great time traveling the world to ensure that it's not flat. I take my (laughs) job very seriously as a journalist, so I've been sea-setting and I hope to bring you (laughs) tales of nautical adventures.
0: Just imagine you a couple months in saying, like, I knew it! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Kelly, so while you were gone, you were able to check out a cinematic masterpiece. Obviously, the world this week is mourning the death of Jean-Luc Godard, but I'm happy to announce that there is a new, bold directorial vision to replace him. I'm speaking, of course, of the Goonie star robert davi we are going to review his new movie my son hunter the sort of biopic if you will about hunter biden kelly what did you make of this
1: movie oh wow it's got legs on don't worry darling for the most talked about cinematic (laughs) events of the fall what can you say about this movie no like genuinely because i think i fell into like some kind of brain fog while watching it it was certainly one of the hallmark cinematic experiences of The last year it's funny
0: you say a brain fog because i do feel like i just totally forget about 30 minutes of this movie like just like a blank period of my life so to set the stage So My Son Hunter is, as folks might imagine, not a positive take on Hunter Biden by the folks who made FBI Lovebirds, the Lisa Page, Peter Strzok story based on their text messages that became such a big deal for House Republicans. This is kind of like what they call their blank check movie. So they did FBI Lovebirds and they kind of scrounged around. They used public records to make that. Then someone gave them a bigger budget. And so now they're splashing down on My Son Hunter with director Robert Davi. To set the stage, I mean, Mison Hunter is told in the form of a frame story, if you will. Not unlike the Canterbury Tales.
1: It's a Shakespearean play within a play. Go on.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the setup is that Hunter Biden, somewhat inexplicably in the fall of 2019, it was a little unclear to me why that was such a key moment. He's spending the night with a sex worker and sort of relating all of his dirty dealings with her. And so then we get all these flashbacks to how the supposed the laptop from hell revealed whatever it supposedly revealed in sort of the most tortured conservative take on emails that say like I got to kick 10% to the big guy. So Kelly, this movie opens Really inexplicably to me. Like, I feel like I was willing to cut this movie a lot of slack because.
1: Same. I did go into this with good faith. Like, I got my noise canceling headphones on. I'm like, I'm really going to commit to this as a movie. Like, I'm not going to watch, I'm not going to live tweet it. I'm really going to focus.
0: I'm going to watch it as the director intended.
1: Right, right. I'm going to honor his vision.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the movie opens up with Joe Biden, the actor who plays Joe Biden. And we have to talk about him first because I got to say, I thought this guy was a pretty good actor.
1: There were actually some decent acting performances in here. It was a mixed bag. There were some people who were kind of fighting back a laugh and that kind of clashed with the actors who could sort of do the best they could with the script. But the Joe Biden actor was definitely on the better end.
0: I thought so as well. The problem is he's nothing like Joe Biden. Like, I mean, he's playing this and this may be kind of an obscure reference here, but he struck me as nothing less than Kelsey Grammer in the mayoral drama Boss, <laughs> in which he's just constantly like growling. He's like, you better get me. Hunter, you better find your laptop, buddy. And like, that's just not what Joe Biden is like at all.
1: I think it's symbolic of like this Republican inability to decide whether Joe Biden is a doddering old fool or the head of the New World Order because they're constantly showing him as like kind of an idiot Holding his phone upside down but then he was also like orchestrating deals in ukraine and it just came out to this really kind of just incoherent portrait of the man i wanted a better character study from this movie
0: I agree. I agree. It was kind of like this guy just rolled up and he said, I want to play a heavy, and that's what I'm going to do. There's just so many bizarre moments here. Like there's a point where he tells Hunter, like he means to say my election, but he says, This better not mess with my erection. And then it goes, uh so the movie opens up with Gina Carano playing a Secret Service agent. Now, Gina Carano, an action star of, I guess, some renown. I don't know. I hadn't heard of her until she got canceled, but she got the boot from The Mandalorian and is now kind of doing these. She's somehow affiliated with the Daily Watch. And she's also a Secret Service agent in My Son Hunter. And I have to say, absolutely horrendous actor.
1: So bad. Oh, my God. Again, I do want to cut these guys slack because I think we'll get to this. The script is so piss poor. So I want to say she's working with what she's got. But Oh, buddy, this is not going to turn out any Academy Awards for this cast.
0: I mean, she's the one with the biggest credits in the cast. And but is probably, I would say, the worst actor in it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, listen, I think the getting canceled from The Mandalorian was kind of a boon because remaining on a widely distributed TV program would not have turned out well for her.
0: Yeah, right. I don't know if they could have handled the spinoff there. So Joe Biden, he gets out of the pool. The movie makes a lot. He's swimming. And the movie makes a lot of like Joe Biden and Hunter love swimming. I don't know where that one's supposed to go. But then he gets out of the pool and gives her hair a big old sniff. So there you go.
1: It's the memes. This whole movie has like a very weird relationship with nudity. Like we'll get in so the Bidens are like always getting in and out of pools. I'm so glad you mentioned that. But one of the next scenes fairly early in the movie is we're seeing Hunter Biden partying, right? He's at this wild party and it does one of my favorite things in like kind of conservative leaning media where they're like, it is so bad that he is around strippers. We're so outraged. We're going to spend five minutes showing the strippers like in just slow motion butts so you know how bad it is. I'm like, you have to be either outraged or horny. You can't do both. We need consistency in this. And it's just really like five full minutes devoted to this in the film. You're
0: absolutely right. I mean, so that gets us into sort of when the plot really gets going. So we get five minutes of a like really sort of lovingly shot striptease scene. (laughs) So it gets going here. Hunter rolls up to a club. And the important thing to understand about this movie is it's shot almost entirely in Serbia.
1: Yes. There's an uncanny valley. It's like, this does not look like a place I know. So according to the actor,
0: or the director, this is because Serbia, like, they could make it kind of look like Ukraine, and there's a lot of Ukraine stuff in there. And also, quote, because of all the beautiful women. Well, there does seem to be an issue, though, because some of these people don't really seem to speak English. And there's a lot of, like, overdubbing of people. So the scene opens at an Antifa protest.
1: Yes, Well, thank you for saying that, because I felt insane. The voices were not matching the mouths on the screen. Okay, go on. <laughs> (laughs) mean it's very odd so
0: so it opens out an antifa protest and there's this woman who is stripper who will spend the night with hunter biden and she's protesting black lives matter in favor of them with her buddy and then basically the antifa beat up a bunch of maga people and our hero our heroine wants to post the video and her friend who's very overdubbed here so she says so the heroine says i think i got a viral video i'm gonna trend and like these are just look at this naturalistic dialogue and then her friend says no you can't post that and she says it's bad optics look most people are are too ignorant to understand complex moral issues you have to withhold some things for their own good now imagine that just not matching at all with the lips
1: also not matching at all with the plot because this serves no other purpose in the movie it doesn't come up again
0: no no not at all not at all and she goes off to her job as a stripper and she meets hunter biden and hunter is introduced he's played by this right wing figure lawrence fox from the uk i will say a guy who's really leaning into the role really hamming it up to the best and so he walks into the club and again it's shot in serbia with seemingly a very cheap extras budget. I mean, this looked like kind of a, this supposed like dark nightclub or what have you, looked like a somewhat rowdy, like work happy hour. Like a lot of people are in khakis.
1: It was very sparsely populated. <laughs> like the party scene is like one girl kind of dancing by the wall. It's like, where is everyone?
0: <laughs> we get the strip club scene. Hunter takes everyone back to the Chateau Marmont. He brags that John Belushi died in a nearby chateau, what have you. And then this is kind of like the big epic party scene. And Hunter, we get a cartoon of Hunter's heart. I will say this movie took sort of like all the worst lessons from Adam McKay movies, in which like figures are they're constantly like little gimmicks going on, and then figures are constantly addressing the audience directly. And so in this case, we see Hunter snorts a little cocaine, and then his heart goes bum ba, bum ba, bum 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 bum, and then he smokes crack. And seemingly crack acts to him like a relaxant. Notoriously, yeah. It's the same drug as powdered cocaine. But it's like he smokes it and it goes, oh, oh, that's the stuff. He really calms down.
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely wild to me. And I'm glad you mentioned that he's a British actor really like throwing himself into the role because he's affecting an American accent. He normally gets it but sometimes it comes out as like one of the only thick Canadian accents I've ever heard he's like I'm sorry I'm sorry at one point so that we've got these gimmicky overlays with like his heart and CGI and it's really just not entirely clear the vision they're going for here there's a lot of really just like discordant tone stuff happening
0: yeah that's exactly right I mean there's this whole thing where like a dog gives Hunter advice and stuff I mean it's very very odd ultimately Hunter kicks everyone out at the dog's advice. No, I'm not making this up. And then he's left with this stripper and he want, he's going to kill himself and then she says, no, why don't you tell me about the laptop from hell and all this. And so he starts talking about Ukraine what have you. And in between, I mean, the, Joe Biden shows up, all this kind of stuff. And this is kind of when the movie really starts to stink Because we enter this world where all we're going to hear about is like the most tangential Breitbart takes on his emails and like, boy, I hope you love hearing about Ukrainian oligarchs because we're getting get into it. <laughs>
1: (laughs) It's like watching Gina Carano, like, read a couple Newsweek articles very slowly, like, with a weird expression. It's, again, I did sort of suspend my criticism here. I'm like, I'm going to actually watch this for what it is. And... It's not engaging well. Like I know you and I probably like spend a lot of time in the sewers reading really high octane insane shit all the time. And this just doesn't pack the punch. I've already read this fever dream rehashing of Hunter Biden's life. And so you get into this extended sequence detailing his supposed crimes and it's like, Can you take us back to the drug scene or something again?
0: Yeah, I mean, it really loses. I would say this movie is an hour and a half. And so I would say like the part we've described here with the drug partying and the swimming pool was maybe like 15 minutes. And then we're entering about...
1: Yeah, I timed it. It was
0: 80 minutes of just like, and then this guy cut a deal with Hunter Biden. It's also, I mean, the movie has said it's fake except for the parts that aren't at the top. So it's kind of like hard to know what's going on and what we're supposed to believe really. As all this is going on, this is kind of like the long night of the soul for Hunter Biden. And as this is going on, he kind of pops out to talk to Joe and this woman he's with, Hunter has a security guard named Tyrone, who is also insanely red-pilled, and so she's Googling, like, Ukraine scheme Biden, and it's all just like, Hunter Biden's a great guy, and she's going, what's going on? And Tyrone says, like, no, you gotta go on DuckDuckGo.
1: It's incredible, his delivery. Again, this is bad script writing, so I can't fully fault the guy, but he goes, you're using the censored internet. You need to find the alternative engines. And it's like...
0: (laughs) At this point, we're just getting, like, so, so much exposition. Gina Carano's popping up at times to say, like, to explain these deals. And then even within her facing the camera, then Hunter turns to the camera and he'll say something. So what ends up happening here is that this woman who was a Democrat, we remember she was basically Antifa. She's so disillusioned by what she's discovered about Hunter and basically... Joe Biden says to him, like, well, we're going to spin up the mainstream media to hide all the stuff from the laptop from hell. And the last we see of Hunter is he goes, all the attention is off me. It's going to be wall to wall, orange man bad. This is the kind of level of script writing we're dealing with. This woman then leaves. She calls up a reporter and she's like, I'm going to blow the lid off this. Seemingly from the Washington Post. Kelly, what was your take on this reporter?
1: This reporter was sitting in his home on a typewriter wearing a derby hat. It was just very like 1950s cub reporter puckish kind of it was cute but this guy's like even if i took the story the search engines would censor it sorry it's not for me are you a trump reporter and it's like i mean you nailed it that's what we do every day i'm sitting in front of a typewriter right now i'm speaking into it yeah
0: i got my fedora on and i'm like hello are you a Trump supporter? Eh, hang up.
1: <laughs> Tuck, uh, tucking my business <laughs> card into the little band on my trilby hat. I love doing that.
0: Right. So this guy was just inexplicably portrayed as this like guy from the 40s. So then he doesn't do the story. But then she just posts all this audio of Hunter confessing. And then everyone's like, oh, you suck. And then Rudy Giuliani DMs her. And he says, hey, let's talk. When you get a DM Rudy Giuliani it could go a lot of ways. But in this case... <laughs> <laughs> it ends up well because Trump's reelected, except psych, he's not. And then she wakes up and she's like, oh. The truth was only a dream. And then also sort of inexplicably, she has this whole plot where she's like estranged from her Republican father. And then he comes in and gives her a hug.
1: There are levels of pathos being projected from this director. I don't even want to dig into what's going on there. But I love it that her fantasy narrative involved DMing Rudy Giuliani. I have to give it credit for originality. I have never seen that construed as a woman's (laughs) fantasy before.
0: So that's my son, Hunter. Kelly, hit me with some other thoughts here. There's a lot to pick apart. I did think this was like the best conservative movie I've had to watch for this podcast. I also totally thought it was just awful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think what frustrated me about this is you can watch a good movie and you can watch a so bad it's good movie, right? You want like something in the tier of like the room that you want to sit there and make fun of for 90 minutes. This didn't really manage to hit either category. I mean, it was across the board bad, but it was also kind of so self-righteous it wasn't really fun to make fun of. I did have notes. I took some notes for the screenwriter. There was a really weird lethargic pacing to it. I think the script was too thin, so they had to pad it out with just more ass shots of strippers and that sort of thing. There was the opening scene was following Hunter Biden around from the behind. I think it was a knockoff of Enter the Void, the Gaspar Noé film. I would say (laughs) overall, I think this was a little derivative. The plot, the writing could have used a bit more oomph. And I'm looking forward to to Hunter Biden to Electric Boogaloo.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's funny you say this because the Hunter Biden journey has not ended. And that's because there's kind of a weird plot going on in the real world here regarding this movie and how it was filmed and Hunter's involvement. You can always just think about Hunter Biden. You think, Hunter, what are you up to now? And in this case, Hunter's legal team embedded a documentary crew with the filming of My Son Hunter. (laughs) Yeah. No, this is a real thing. So there's like a lot of like subterfuge going on here and cloak and dagger stuff. And I think more will be revealed. But basically this documentary crew contacted the filmmakers of My Son Hunter and they did not reveal that they were being funded by Hunter's lawyer. And they said, hey, we're working on a Hunter Biden documentary. Can we come film your movie being made? And they said, sure. And so Hunter had sort of like spies on the set and I guess they really are making a Hunter Biden, like a pro-Hunter documentary, kind of like Save the Last Dance was for Michael Jordan. And so it's just like very strange. And I guess we will now see the footage of, I don't know, Hunter watching my son Hunter or something. I mean, I got to say, whoever's involved in this, like, I mean, if they really don't pull any punches, this could truly be an incredible documentary. But I mean, there's just like a lot of plots and counterplots afoot.
1: Absolutely. Maybe they were so far embedded, they like sabotaged the script. And that's why it sucked so
0: bad. <laughs> it was (laughs) supposed to be good they were just like here gina carano (laughs) read this look at the camera
1: i just had like this intrusive memory of there was also like a gina carano like boudoir shoot with Joe Biden in this. Yes, there's
0: kind of like a sexy scene that's just like a fantasy. This movie has like kind of a weird, like it's got a lot of like cheesecake. That's kind of like in fitting with the filmmakers who are kind of like, we're cool Republicans. Like we get it a little sexy.
1: Yeah, but I also looked up the director's last film and according to IMDb it was the 2010 movie Magic the Talking Dog. So I'm not sure he has (laughs) like the actual chops for that self-aware kind of wink (laughs) wink self-effacing thing.
0: This is incredible. Well, in closing, I would just like to inevitably if you go to any kind of Republican event, if you go to CPAC, people are going to talk about Andrew Breitbart's fated words, politics is downstream of culture. And this is sort of a sort of an obvious thing to say, but they sort of treat it like this very wise message. I mean, they bring it up constantly, but in practice, it usually amounts to being like anyways, fun, my crappy conservative movie. And I gotta say, I feel like they have not really succeeded with this one with steering the culture with my son, Hunter. I think this one is going to have to get a thumbs down from me.
1: They'll say that it's a win because we're talking about it, but they've been talking about this for what, two straight years. So joining you thumbs down salad rotten tomato
0: Gina Carano you got to get uncancelled got to go back to Tatooine okay so leaving the fantasy world of globe-trotting hunter biden and entering the real world kelly you've got a story about republicans deluging local elections officials with crazy paperwork demands what's going on there
1: so this is the latest tactic from the stop the steal world which has tried maybe 15 20 iterations to overturn the 2020 elections and this new effort involves sending mountains of effectively spam mail to local elections officials. What they're doing is the Mike Lindells of the world have spent the past year and a half trying to find evidence of voter fraud, and by God, they think that this time, this attempt might work. Really, starting this summer, they've had several conspiracy commentators like Mike Lindell, like Tori Morris, circulating form letters that their followers can copy and paste and send to local elections officials. These letters say, I am considering suing you for suspected fraud in the elections. You are ordered to retain all documents related to the 2020 election and or turn them over to me. Now, what's really frustrating about this is Stop the Steal spammers are acting like it's a secret trick when they actually do receive the records from these requests. But it's literally county clerk's job to find these records and turn them over to people who request them. And so the result is really tiny local elections offices being overwhelmed by dozens and dozens of requests for data that Honestly, these spammers don't even know what to deal with.
0: So basically what's going on here is, as you said, I mean, they're swamping these random elections officials. I mean, these are people sometimes from across the country going after someone out West, going after some elections official in Massachusetts or something. And they're saying, you got to preserve all these records. And it's a lot of it's kind of like shades of sovereign citizen stuff in that a lot of it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't really have any legal meaning. They're just saying, oh, you got to preserve all this stuff. And then these officials are sort of left to think, geez, am I going to get sued? I think it's part of this larger effort to drive any normal, well-meaning person out of these roles and make it such a pain in the neck that really only just utter stop-the-steal lunatics will run for these offices. Now, Kelly, tell me about some of the folks behind these efforts.
1: So I mentioned Tori Morris.
0: Let's break down Tori because I think this is a character who is a very interesting one, but I think has sort of failed to sort of break through into the broader public conscience.
1: And it's a shame, too, because she's got some really colorful, greatest hits. She's got been kind of peripheral on Kraken efforts. She's been involved in these Sidney Powell lawsuits to overturn the election, to seize voting machines, what have you. That's kind of fizzled out now.
0: She was one of these people Sydney would say like, yeah, this entire thing is premised on the study of this like deep state military intel expert.
1: She presents herself as a military, yeah.
0: And then it would turn out that it was like, oh, like Tory, and I'm paraphrasing her credentials here. It was essentially like she was either like a mechanic where she had like taken like half of a class and washed out of something. I mean, it was really like they were kind of posing her as this like James Bond type figure. And then that very much turned out not to be the case.
1: It's like Jack Pisobiec presents himself as a Navy intelligence figure. And then it was revealed that he was literally just the inspector of urine samples in the Navy. It's really comparable. <laughs> but Tori Morris, her next couple iterations were as a conspiracy podcaster. She tried running for secretary of state in Ohio. She didn't get her application ready on time, so she didn't even get on the ballot. She's currently in court with the state trying to accuse them of silencing her, but again, it was just paperwork incompetence. But speaking of paperwork, she is now urging her followers and she's got like 50,000 followers on Telegram alone to copy and paste these bullshit affidavits and request letters and send them in mass to local officials. And I spent the past couple of days actually talking to local elections officials who I have to say are kind of the salt of the earth. People don't really go into county clerking unless they want to make a difference, they want to be accountable to people with a few exceptions like Tina Peters in Colorado, but most of these folks are really committed to their jobs, and they're telling me about the stuff that's being requested of them. Some guy said they're asking for things like five-foot-long ticker tape from inside voting machines that they can't even really fit on a copier to send over. So... All of these guys take their jobs very seriously. They are going to produce these records. But in the meantime, it's just bogging down their offices. People have to hire additional temp workers to deal with this. And by the way, this comes in the middle of an election season when these already really understaffed offices are pretty much full steam ahead trying to run a sane and accurate election. So it really just completely undercuts the purpose of their job
0: Tori is a figure who might sound marginal but she has a weirdly enormous following she posted a picture once she claimed her followers bought her kid a car she's always posting pictures of like these Tory meetups around the country and it's like a dozen people at a diner <laughs>
1: Worst Comic-Con ever.
0: And they always say like, we're doing Patriot shit, which I think amounts to doing this kind of stuff that just really gums up the works of places where these offices that were not created to respond to every kind of kooky idea Tori cooks up in her head. What's the end game here? I mean, what are these folks after?
1: First of all, their primary mission is to feel like they're doing something right. They feel like they've cracked the code when a local clerk in Massachusetts is like, yeah, sure, give me five to 10 business days and I'll send you the same records that you could find online. But longer term, they're really trying to wear down these public officials. And you see this in other elections roles across the country. In Michigan, there's been a huge harassment campaign of like Republican election officials who upheld Biden's victory. They are driving these folks out and to the point where the only people who will take the job are people who are kind of already a little bit nuts. They're trying to wear these folks down and stoke distrust in the system, which is inherently going to work worse because everybody who knows how it works has headed for the exits.
0: Not good.
1: This <laughs> is <laughs> <Just> suboptimal. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tori's hanging here on Telegram. She's saying, oh, this is super fun. Gum up the system. Maybe they should do their
2: jobs.
1: They are doing their jobs. You're making it impossible for them to do their jobs. This is what's so frustrating. I used to work at a knockoff Chipotle and this is like if somebody came and ordered like 50 burritos and they're like, ha we showed her. Well, you're allowed to order 50 burritos. It's just fucking annoying.
0: This is the equivalent of these like viral TikTok Starbucks orders where it's like (laughs) you go in and order with all the special squirts and everything. Oh, man. All right. Well, this is kind of part of this, another prong of this attempts to just sort of terrorize local officials, whether it's at the school level or the elections level. And I think it's Donald Trump's loss in 2020, I think, really panicked a lot of his supporters. And sort of they were just like, I got to get some kind of agency. And part of that, I think, is terrorizing either your own local elected officials or sometimes just people in an entirely different state.
1: Any official, pick one. These folks in Massachusetts are getting emails from Texas. I mean, uh, uh, under what grounds are these people going to say? It's just completely made up. And yet, because there are public officials, they have to take these requests seriously. All right, Will, who do we have as a guest this week?
0: All right, Kelly. So- Folks may remember late country singer Charlie Daniels, who would often tweet, Benghazi ain't going away. So I thought it was about time, in his honor, that we get to the bottom of Benghazi, the famous 2012 terrorist attacks. There's obviously Benghazi itself, and then there's sort of the Benghazi of the mind, the way that Benghazi exists in our politics to this day, and particularly on the right and the specter of another Benghazi that could be used against Democrats. So I thought we'd have on Ethan Corrin. He's a Libya expert, was the author of a new book on Benghazi and its aftermath it's called benghazi a new history of the fiasco that pushed america and its world to the brink frankly i'm not a super big benghazi head in terms of what the sort of republican narrative about that is given that that dates back to 2012 and so i'm excited to have him dig into it
1: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news Fevered Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
0: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
1: Head to feveredreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
0: This week on fever dreams we're joined by ethan chorin he's an expert on libya and the author of the new book on the 2012 benghazi attacks benghazi a new history of the fiasco that pushed america and its world to the brink ethan thank you for joining us
2: thanks very much for having me so for folks who
0: don't remember obviously this was a decade ago i mean and i feel like it's been through so many sort of distorting media processes what was the benghazi attack
2: well it most immediately it was an attack on a u.s diplomatic mission which is distinct from either a consulate or an embassy. It was basically just a bare-bones mission in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi on the evening of the anniversary of 9-11. And the attack went through into the early hours of the next morning. There were two locations for it. The first was an attack, initially about 20 radical militants on the compound itself. And then the second attack was on the CIA annex a couple of kilometers away. And very tragically in that incident, four U.S. officials were killed, Ambassador Chris Stevens, Tyrone Woods, Glenn Doherty, and Sean Smith. And of course, the attack has its own mechanics and history, but the attack morphed quickly into a massive American domestic scandal, which had Really only sort of tenuous connections to what was going on on the ground in Benghazi at the time or in the region as a whole.
1: Now, Ethan, you write in this book that you were nearly at the mission on the day of the attack. Can you walk us through your proximity to the attack and what it was like for you?
2: Yeah, well, I had arrived the day before, the same day that Ambassador Stevens arrived. And actually, I didn't realize that Chris was in town. We were originally supposed to meet on September 11th in Tripoli. And I canceled that meeting because I thought that the situation in Tripoli had gotten a bit too hot for comfort. And I was watching the situation in Benghazi decline rapidly, more and more attacks on official personnel, foreigners, etc. And was getting increasingly worried. But as I can explain a bit later, there was a specific reason for me to be there. Just as I argue in the book, there was a very specific reason for Chris Stevens to be in Benghazi at the time. And I reached out to Chris and we arranged to meet. Chris invited me to the compound the night of September 11th for dinner. And I remember very vividly thinking, Chris, you know that I'm no longer in the Foreign Service. I don't have protection. And I assumed that Chris had quite a bit. Of course, Not nearly enough. And I demurred and Chris picked up on that and said, okay, well, we'll meet the next day as in the 12th morning at the hospital, which we were trying to help rehabilitate as part of a broader infrastructure, medical infrastructure development project that I was helping with. So at that evening, things seemed, as they always do, seem calm before they're not. And I was on the phone, I got a call via my colleague, asking me if I'd heard, this was around 9.30, 9.35, that I heard something was going on at the mission. And I immediately thought, well, that doesn't sound good. And I went back to my hotel, I was at the time at my hotel, which doubled as my original base in Benghazi while I was a diplomat and also was Chris Stevens's office while he was envoy to Libya the previous year. And from my hotel room, I was talking to a colleague and all of a sudden we heard what seemed like an RPG blast and connecting that to what I had just heard that something might be going on at the mission, that immediately sent my stomach into somersaults. And we essentially spent the night crouched in our hotel rooms, hoping that we weren't the next targets. And I was watching out my window as these masses of militiamen and small pickup trucks were facing one another and all sorts of odd behavior was going on until the early morning. And it was just a profoundly terrifying experience. And then, of course, in the early morning, I learned from a partner at the Benghazi Medical Center that, in fact, Chris had been killed and that there were other casualties. And as I write in the book, I was filled with both profound sadness and thinking, then we are going to have a long day in front of us.
0: So Ethan, you mentioned the sort of difference between what actually happened in Benghazi and what, once this news makes it to the United States and and these Republican investigations began, what sort of the American perception of the Benghazi attacks are. I mean, can you get into the differences there and sort of the political use of Benghazi?
2: Well, Stepping back a few steps, well, one thing I can say that I was, I had to remain in Turkey for several days after the attack in order to wait for my, one of my colleagues to get out of Benghazi. The flights had stopped. And by the time both of us made it back to the States, the impressions of, that we had of what had gone on in Benghazi, what had happened, and the outlines of the attack had been already distorted, almost beyond recognition. We all found that profoundly disturbing. So. The question was, I had this very strange feeling when I, I had press calling me and asking me questions about citing this video that has been was widely blamed for the attack at the time and wondering what on earth has happened? How did these stories start to take on such velocity? And I think the book investigates, in, in part, what are the long-tail causes of Benghazi? It didn't just appear out of nowhere. The American public never really got the full context of where that came from. The attack itself, I think there are various reasons Reasons why it became almost the perfect scandal material. It was the obviously the anniversary of 9-11. It occurred at the tail end of a campaign that wasn't a sure win for Obama. And it was also a particular moment in the evolution of social media. I interviewed many data scientists and people who track social media trends and development, and several of them have said quite strongly that had Benghazi occurred even a few months before and filtering out for all those other effects, the social media activation of it would not have been nearly as dramatic. And Benghazi basically became the first global social media mega blowout. So all of those things. And the other factor, of course, is all of the issues that and emotions that were wound up and entwined in Republican Democratic dialogues before Benghazi was suddenly on display. Here again, context is very important. I think that the Obama administration was rightly very concerned from almost day one of the administration that the Republicans were going to jump on them and beat them up for any sign of a 9-11 related Incident abroad, or any kind of failure to master the consequences of 9/11 and the Iraq War, which, of course, was not Obama's fault. That came from the Bush administration, which is sort of the original sin, I call it.
0: There's a lot to get into. So, in your book, you mentioned like what caused the Benghazi attack, and it, there was obviously a lot of questions about this idea that this video that was criticizing a Muslim set it off, and then it seems as though that was discredited. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, what do you see as the causes of the attack?
2: Well, at this point, a fairly clear at least mid-level consensus that, I mean, it were consensus around the basic facts, which it was a terrorist attack and it was linked very clearly to Al-Qaeda. When you get beyond that, there's all kinds of details that really haven't, for all of the attention that Benghazi got at the time and that period got and the video, etc., we've still not managed to disentangle the facts around the attack and what the, say the longer term consequences were and who was involved, or even to bring anyone who had a planning role in it to justice. We've brought we've basically kidnapped and brought two individuals to trial in the United States, and they were acquitted of the major the most serious charges against them. Still given relatively stiff prison sentences, but we have not gotten into those details. The book I dive into this in great detail. But basically, when it comes down to it, the origins of Benghazi can be found most immediately in the American reaction to 9-11 and the rapprochement US cozy or bringing in from the cold of the former dictator Muammar Gaddafi. That deal basically involves taking a group of Afghan Libyan, well, Libyan fighters who cut their teeth in Afghanistan, kidnapping them, bringing them back to America, torturing them for torture by the Gaddafi regime and for information about what might be forthcoming in terms of another. 9-11 attack. That process and the subsequent attempt by the Qaddafi regime with support from the United States and some in Europe to rehabilitate these individuals basically put us in a position where when the Arab Spring broke out, all of a sudden these people who we had kidnapped, tortured, interrogated were now in positions of some influence. And we didn't know enough to tell who was who. Eventually, we managed to hire some of the people who were sympathizers with these groups to protect the mission. That's where Benghazi came from. We got stabbed in the back by groups that we really had no reason to be relying upon for help.
1: Ethan, one thing that you write, and I think it's a great metaphor, you describe Benghazi as sort of the tin can rattling behind the car of the Trump campaign in 2015 and 2016. Can you say a little bit about how this tragedy was reanimated and worked into the 2016 campaign, how it became such a scandal specifically for Hillary Clinton?
2: Well, this is going to be a bit controversial, but after looking at all of the material, I probably know Benghazi and all of the sources better than (laughs) the vast majority of people, put it that way. The Obama administration, ultimately, basically the scandal emerged. How should I put this? The Obama administration, as I noted before, was absolutely and rightly concerned that the Republicans were going to make a huge issue out of anything that smacked of 9-11 negligence or failure to prosecute the war on terror. And when the Benghazi attack occurred, there was a lot of confusion. And certainly from Washington, it looked like all of a sudden there were all of these protests and violent attacks against U.S. missions and consulates and embassies abroad, and that it must be in reaction to this video that was produced by a disaffected Coptic Egyptian in Los Angeles, and that there was this reaction to try to tamp down that upsurge of broad regional anger at this video. But one thing that was very clear to us on the ground, and there were many other witnesses that I tracked down after the fact, who diplomats, senior businessmen, people who had direct visibility on the compound, at least part of it, and who had each of them different pieces of that puzzle. And the idea that the mystery over what caused the attack could persist for as long as it did was really quite astounding. As one colleague, former Austrian diplomat at the time, noted, if he could figure out from Tripoli the basic lines of what had gone on within a couple of hours, why did the United States take more than two weeks to come to some sort of a consensus about what, at least on the intelligence side, of what went on? I truly believe that essentially what happened was there was a lot of confusion. We didn't have enough assets on the ground, and we didn't track down enough of the sort of spectrum of witnesses at the time to have a clear picture. But at some point, the Obama administration essentially made the decision, probably, probably, again, out of fear of a scandal brewing, that they were going to essentially stick to this very vague story and push it over the line, hoping that effectively by the time the election was over, the whole thing would be a non-issue. That echoes throughout many of the Obama-era memoirs. And it's a fine line. Looking at that context, one has a great deal of sympathy for the administration because the Republicans were simply going at them like crazy. But the decision not to come out clearly when many in the intelligence community It already figured out what was going on and just call it what it is, essentially allowed the Republicans to legitimately claim that the administration was kicking the ball down the street. And that allowed more, and combined with all those other forces that I was talking about and the charged nature of the issue and its links to 9-11, et cetera, allowed the people who wanted to build conspiracies to build even more, go from something that's plausible to things that are completely and utterly ridiculous. And then you've got the social media silos and everything else building up to a point where you've got the genesis of a long-term problem. And ultimately, this impacted the election in 2016. The cost or the burden of that decision by the Obama administration landed first on, as we know, UN Ambassador Susan Rice, who was, uh, had to withdraw her application for Secretary of State, and then broadly on Secretary Clinton, who became the next best object of right-wing higher. And you have to have a bit of sympathy also for Clinton. Clinton has been certainly dragged through the mud more than the vast majority of people. And actually, over the course of writing this book, my sympathies for her kind of, I have to say that my sympathies for her grew because here she was caught between two narratives, which were the Republican and the Democrat or the Obama administration narrative and the right wing narrative, both of which were very much flawed. And they had their truthful elements, but they were also, as I say, severely flawed. And she had no escape. What do you do? She has to basically be loyal to the Obama administration, but she also doesn't want to make herself even more of a target for the Republicans. And as one senior Obama official told me several years later, when I asked, what is the impact of Benghazi on the 2016 election? Was there an impact? And many people will, on the left will say immediately, absolutely not. It was completely irrelevant, waste of money, etc., etc." But the fact that it festered to this degree was Benghazi's essentially was the common denominator for many of the other factors that ultimately were separately or together were blamed for or credited, for it, depending on how you see it, for Trump's win or Clinton's loss. You had the attack itself. You have Hillary Clinton email's issue, which was brought to light and pushed very strongly and framed by the Benghazi Committee, which was Republican-led. Then you had the Comey, FBI Director Comey statements, which were highly controversial and timed in such a way that were damaging to Clinton. And then you had also the impact of Benghazi on the right. Russia- Russian cyber attacks where the Russians basically used, this wasn't the only factor, but the Russians used the Benghazi material and memes as feedstock for their campaigns. The influence is pervasive. And Clinton herself said in her campaign evaluation that Benghazi was a stain. Accusations around Benghazi were a stain that basically she couldn't wipe off.
0: So, Ethan, you talk about because of the political impact of Benghazi, you talk in the book about this prospect in both the Trump and, and now the Biden administrations of another, the new Benghazi, Whenever U.S. soldiers are killed in kind of a headline-grabbing way, this idea that the administration will have a new Benghazi to deal with, why do you think we haven't had something that had the sticking power of Benghazi since then?
2: Well, I think the ghost of Benghazi is basically hasn't left us. And it's quite striking that Sunday was the 10th anniversary of the Benghazi attack and there was virtually no coverage of it. And we really haven't come to terms with the transformative effects of Benghazi and all of its unique aspects. I mean, everything that I mentioned before, the timing, the technology, the toxicity and amenability of the subject matter to partisan dispute, all of that basically created a four-year blowout that absolutely has to have had an impact on polarizing this country. And it certainly had an impact on the appearance of the Trump administration. Without Benghazi, I and many other people who otherwise have not gone public in saying this believe very strongly that Benghazi was essentially shaped the political world that we live in today, and many of the foreign inter- interactions that we're having today, including a strong, not insignificant link to the Russian invasion of both Crimea and uh, Ukraine. That's a longer story, which needs to be told separately, but this was a momentous event which nobody wants to talk about, or at least majority of people feel that it's either too toxic to talk about or that it's insignificant. But I argue that rather than looking at all of these books now that are looking at Trump and trying to dissect endlessly that scandal, we should look into some of the antecedents and how the United States' reaction to 9-11 at first and treating it as an ideological war rather than actually a major criminal act. And all of these other side deals that we've done that have essentially caused tremendous damage in places like Libya. There's a bigger mess here and an institutional erosion that is the responsibility of both Democrats and Republicans and the dysfunctional relationship that they've developed to one another. It's like a bickering couple that would rather they both kill each other than actually solve the problems and the beneficiaries are our adversaries. I don't think that Al-Qaeda looking at this, you know, there was, I mentioned a cartoon in The Onion in the book, where the caption that you have two jihadists sitting on a couch watching TV and above it is a caption that says, FBI uncovers Al-Qaeda plot to sit back and watch America destroy itself. And I think that's basically what we've got here.
0: So interesting, this idea that Benghazi is really kind of the missing piece of what led to Trump's election. And we're glad you looked into it. Ethan Chorin, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And once again, Ethan is the author of the new book on the Benghazi attacks, Benghazi, a new history of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. And now we come to fresh hell when Kelly, who has been gone for so many months, she's been journeying to find just truly the hottest slice of fresh hell. Kelly, what's going on?
1: What's going on is that you're probably seeing conservatives talk about "quote unquote" regime Democrats, often with a capital R. This is a fairly new phenomena. It's just kind of pricked up my ears as the worst new thing that you're going to see online. But this is a new trend from folks like Benny Johnson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, people who contribute to the Federalists, that kind of crowd. What they're doing is characterizing Democrats as a, quote, regime, right? Using this language that implies that they are autocratic, that there's something nefarious about them. It's really at this tipping point where you can see them really trying to meme it into existence. They think that they get a certain weight behind it. They can really make it stick. And I think it's striking that this has taken off right after the Mar-a-Lago raid, when the right is looking for any reason to cast the left as the new Nazis, some kind of authoritarian force. And I think this is kind of the language that they're going to run with for the next couple weeks.
0: This is sort of the new forced beam, as you're saying regime Democrats, regime, 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 regime. You say it enough. I don't think this one's going to catch on, but I mean, here's the hope. So you have this Benny Johnson tweet, and I have to say, Benny Johnson, former BuzzFeed reporter, noted multi-time plagiarist, this guy's kind of getting on my nerves. I got to say, people ask me, how do you have such a tolerance for these folks? Normally, I enjoy it, but Benny, he has kind of a jarring aesthetic that I don't really like anymore, and he's just like really just jumping on everything, freaking out. So in this case, here's a tweet from him. Never forget that regime Dems, okay, here's our first use of regime. Regime Dems spent 9-11 likening Americans who disagree with them to literal terrorists. They did this with the gleeful cheering of regime media. That same day, the regime was negotiating legal victories, blah, blah, blah. And then he says...
1: All these regimes are capitalized, by the way. It's a real... It's like when the word is bolded in a high school textbook. It's like, oh, I've got to remember that one.
0: This is some off-brand Chris Rufo stuff, man. You got to get Chris Rufo and Conceptual James to come up with a new clever little thing for them, like critical race theory or what have you. Because this stuff, it ain't hitting the same.
1: (laughs) It's off brand. We need our real super group to come up with something because this isn't quite hitting the mark.
0: So, how is Marjorie Taylor Greene playing into all
1: this? So, she's picked it up. She is not that I've seen use the capital R regime, but she's doing it too. And there's a real kind of Benny Johnson to MTG sort of pipeline. They're very much on the same talking points. Marjorie Taylor Greene likes to pick up things that are like just a little spicier on the blog, right? She's always kind of adopting the far right chatter. And so she's really good bellwether, I think for what increasingly mainstream Republican politics are going to be. She sort of launders talking points from the Rufos, the Benny Johnsons of the world into elected office. So seeing her tweet about the quote regime, it's like, okay, I see where you're going with this.
0: An idea just occurred to me. Do you think that this regime Dems push is sort of a response to the Democrats trying to brand a part of the Republican base as MAGA Republicans?
1: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, but it's interesting because I think these actually kind of work both ways, right? When Biden says mega Republicans, he's trying to delineate between the mega crowd and a supposedly softer, nicer base of Republicans that elected Democrats want to believe exists. This is Republicans saying we need a strong and conscientious Republican Party. But this tactic seems to kind of go the opposite way. It's sort of casting all Democrats as this part of this regime, as part of this authoritarian bloc. I don't know. That's my read on it. That's my parse in the words there. But it is interesting. Yeah. They often seem to want to work in parallel. So if Trump does something just off the charts awful, like allegedly holding on to classified documents, Republicans aren't really going to engage so much with the legal case against him as the prosecution against him. They're going to turn around and say, actually, it's the Democrats who, as a bloc, are doing these things that are super untoward. So I think it's kind of a way of trying to draw parallels between them and say, actually, you're the Nazis, you're the authoritarians, don't look at us.
0: I think it's a clever move coming as it does with like Trump's legal case worsening. And so you sort of lay the groundwork for, as Trump advisors are subpoenas, their phones are seized, to say, well, don't. I mean, what can you expect? from the regime it's also funny i mean these rebranding efforts it reminds me of during kind of the high COVID era where these you go to these anti-covid measures conferences and what have you and people would say they would always be like you can't expect me to wear a face diaper and it's like well don't call it that i agree yeah if you call it a face diaper you're not gonna like it you just call it a mask so these rebranding efforts I think they have sometimes they work i think in the case of critical race theory and sometimes i think they kind of fall flat
1: yeah absolutely i mean to your point this is a rebranding that they try like twice a year at least i'm thinking about merging. Joy Taylor Greene's Gaspacho comment when she was stumbling over the word Gestapo. They're always kind of dabbling in this rhetoric. They'll throw a lot at the wall, see what memes, see what trends and see what they have to move on from and completely collectively have amnesia from.
0: Now, Kelly, it seems as though not all Republicans are on board with the regime rebrand.
1: Yeah, that's right. I saw a former Marco Rubio staffer tweeting about it the other day. He said conservatives should be disgusted and alarmed by politicians and commentators lately tossing around the word the regime to refer to our legitimate government and institutions, it's dangerous and seditionist talk for thrills and likes. Yeah, I mean I think he's probably on to something. I'm not sure how dangerous it is, but it's the sentiment. But I think more telling even than that tweet was the response to it from his world among conservatives. And he is being ratioed, really, by fellow Republicans, people telling him, oh, but it is a regime. Why are you saying that you must be triggered, etc.? So maybe Joe Biden is right. There are some Republicans who aren't MAGA Republicans and who recognize this is kind of gross. But by and large, that doesn't seem to be the sentiment of the party. And a lot of folks are trying to make this term work even in spite of the more moderate voices among them.
0: Yeah, I think in terms of if you could come up with maybe a class of person who would be least relevant in the current Republican Party, I think former Marco Rubio staffer might be up there. <laughs> I don't know how much clout this guy's rolling with. Well, in that case, I think we can all look forward to hearing, I think, regime repeated over and over into 2022, into the midterms, potentially into 2024. Kelly, thank you so much for this fresh hell update. Glad to have you back in the game.
1: Glad to be here, Well. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and Beyond, from politics to popular culture.
0: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen